Can we ask you to bless this time as we look at your word, guide and lead us, let us see what you want us to see from this section of scripture. And we just love you for all that you've done for us and thank you in Jesus' name, amen. Jeremiah chapter 11, starting at verse 18. Jeremiah is continuing his prophecy uh, of judgment coming on Israel. And so at verse 18, and the Lord has given me knowledge of it and I know it. Then you show me their, their doings but I was like a lamb or an ox that is brought to the slaughter. I knew not that they had devised devices against me, saying, Let us destroy the tree with the fruit thereof, and let us cut him off from the land of the living, that his name may be no more remembered. But, O Lord of hosts, that judges righteously, that tries the reins of the heart, let me see their vengeance upon them. For unto thee, you have I revealed my cause. Therefore, thus saith the Lord of of the men of Anatoth that seek your life, saying, Prophesy not in the name of the Lord, that you die not by our own hand. Therefore thus saith the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will, will punish them. The young men shall die by the sword, their sons and their daughters shall die by famine, and there shall be no remnant of them, for I will bring evil upon the men of Anathoth, even the year of their visitation. So here we have the result of Jeremiah's prophecies. The people do not like it. <laughs> you know, and we see this over and over with the prophets. They speak things that people do not want to hear and their lives get threatened in many cases. And so here he's saying, the Lord has given me knowledge of it. Knowledge of what? The evil that Israel is doing, that Judah is doing. And I think this is so interesting because even us as Christians, when we look around at this world and see how evil our world is becoming, and I hope everybody's seeing that. I mean, I know I'm, I'm seeing it. Uh, you know, good is being called evil. Evil is being called good. People are doing what's right in their own eyes. And we as Christians look, and it's almost appalling at how fast this sinful attitude is happening. And this is what Jeremiah says, God opened my eyes. I'm seeing this evil. And he goes, and I know, and I know it for when you showed me their doings. He goes, I knew it when you showed me their doings. God opened his eyes and revealed to him. Yes. And so this is something that happens when we're righteous, we're following God, we're seeking God. God really does start to open our eyes to all the evil that is going on around us. And it's not for us to condemn it, it's actually so that we will pray for them and to call, maybe even call it out at times in a, in a righteous, non-judgmental way, but just say, God calls this sin. Not to go after people. You know, I, don't want any, I don't want to go after anybody because I know that I've got plenty of sin in my own life, but I'm going to say things are sin when God calls them sin. And this is something that's very important illicit sex, no matter what format it takes, is a sin. Any sex outside of marriage is a sin. God calls it so. Uh, murder of our children and our older people is sin. It's murder. And, you know, and our world is saying, well, we'll get rid of the babies because they're just going to become a nuisance. They're going to be a drag on our lifestyle. So let's just get rid of the babies and, and make it so that nobody has to have a drag unless they want to. Oh, and by the way, those old people 
that are no longer of any use, we'll just get rid of them as well. Because we don't want them eating up the inheritance. We don't want them you know, draining the, the medical system. So we'll just kill them. And that's the logic they use on it. It sounds so compassionate when they, when they make it and people accept it. Now, I'm sure they won't accept it when they're 80, 90 years old and they're the ones that people are wanting to put, put down. And you know, if they were the baby in the womb, they wouldn't want to have it put down. But it sounds so wonderful to them. Sin sounds wonderful in so many cases. They'll make a great case for why it is the way to go. And God will open our eyes and let us see what's going on. And, you know, we need to be able to see what's going on. And it's very interesting over the years how God opens my eyes more and more to the sin around me. And even things that I used to think were okay, I didn't get problems by now, I'm looking at them and going, God, how could I have ever seen that as good? Now, I don't try to make everybody understand what I see because it took me... 50, almost 60 years to get to it myself, 50 years to get to it myself. So I don't expect other people to see it. But when God opens your eyes, it's really hard sometimes when you look around and saying, how can any of this be going on? And Jeremiah is saying, God, you opened my eyes. Verse 19 says, but I was like a lamb or an ox that is brought to slaughter. I knew not that they had devised devices against me. This is the, the naiveness that Jeremiah has. He doesn't realize the plots that people have against him. Now, the good news is God told him that he was going to make him, at the beginning of the book, told him he was going to make him like steel. He was going to make him like flint. Nobody was going to be able to harm him until the time of his death. So I guess that might have been part of his naiveness. You know, people want to destroy me. God says, I'm, I'm in, you know, uh, not going to be destroyed until he says that it's time to be destroyed. And I fully believe that that is a true statement. When God is done with us, we're going to die. Before God is done with us, we're not going to die. It doesn't matter what the plots are, what's happening, how it happens. We will not die until God is done with us. How do we know some of this? Well, you had Paul on the, on the island that they were shipwrecked on. And what happened? He put the wood in the fire and a viper grabbed his hand. He just took the viper into the fire and went about his business. No, no ill effects from it because God was not done with him. And you know, we see this over and over in the, in the scriptures and in biographies. We're going to keep going until God says it's time to go home. I totally feel safe no matter where I'm at because if God wants me home, I, can't, I could be in the safety of my own home and still die. Or I could be in the middle of the Harlem and, you know, uh, and be in problems or the middle of the combat zone in Boston or middle of downtown L.A. where, where you're not supposed to be in Watts you know, and still be fully safe if God says that's where I'm supposed to be. And this is what he's saying. He goes, I did not even know that they were devising plans against me. Now, from this point on, he's going to talk a lot about the plans that God showed, shows them of their destruction. Uh, and, he, and he says, they're saying, let us destroy the tree with the fruit thereof. Let us cut him off from the land of the, land of the living, that his name may be no more remembered. This is a pretty bad situation. They, want him, they don't even want Jeremiah to be remembered. All right, we're going to get rid of you, and you know, we're not going to let anybody know who you are. We're not going to let any remembrance of you happen. 
Uh, only problem is God had different plans for Jeremiah. And he's going to really take them out. But he says, but, and I love this. Uh, we talk about this all the time. Whenever you see but, something is changing. In verse 20, but the Lord, O Lord of hosts, that judges rightly, you tried the reins of the heart. Let me see your vengeance on them. For unto you have I revealed my cause. So he goes to God. And he is claiming to God and saying, God, number one, you judge rightly. And we need to really understand this. God always judges correctly. He can't be bought off because nobody has enough money to buy off God because he owns everything. He knows everything. They can't trick him because he's already seen everything that's going on. You cannot do anything that's going to trick. You know lawyers trick to get, God's, get, on the, get God to make the wrong decision. He tries rightly. He judges correctly, always. And this is something that we're going to have to understand. And a lot of people will say, well, how can we remember the people that were sent to hell and not be totally sad in heaven? Well, I really believe it's because God judges rightly and he will show us that they got what they wanted. They got what they asked for. Because I don't believe that we're going to have a Swiss cheese brain in heaven where God removes all the bad things out of our mind, but we will see it from the right side and the right dimension and be able to say, oh, that is why all those things happen. This is why this happened. Oh, that's why they were cast into hell because these 90 times that they rejected Jesus in their lifetime and we will know it for what it is. He judges correctly and I think he will show us the right way. And we've heard the story of the idea of the tapestry. You know, we're seeing the tapestry from the wrong side. And if you've ever looked at needlepoint or tapestry and you look at the back side of it, it looks like a mess. There's, there's little strings and cables and knots all over the place that make no sense, but you flip it over and you see a beautiful picture. And I think that's exactly what will happen to us when we get to heaven. It's been said not by, not by me originally, but many others. When we get to heaven, we're going to see the tapestry of this world and, and life and going, oh, that's why these things happened. That's why I went through all of this, because this line right there on the tapestry needed to be made. And we're going to see it totally different than we see it today. And this is what he says. God, you know, it says you try the reins uh, of the heart. And try means to literally... Uh, bake away to to uh, examine, scrutinize. And he goes, you train, try the reins of the heart, and reins are the the uh, control, and heart is the innermost being of who we are. All right? When we read heart, most of the time in the Old Testament, it's the word lab, which means the innermost emotions. It is our soul. It is who we really are when God talks about the heart. Now, there are times when he talks about a literal heart. And if it says something in the context, it almost has to be the literal heart. Take it. But when he uses it like this, you try the heart. He wasn't running him through a whole bunch of exercises and seeing how strong his heart is. All right. We get to do those kind of exercises when you go to the cardiologist and they run you through a stress test and they want, and they're trying your heart. How strong is your heart? That is not what God's talking about here. He says, I want to know who you are in the deepest, innermost part of your life. And he tries it. Why does he try it? 
Not because he does not know our heart, but he wants us to understand our heart. Because we have this great capacity to lie to ourselves. And I hear it all the time from people. Well, I'm basically a good person. Okay, by whose standards? All right. Uh, and I, even out of the prison. Well, I, I'm better than all the people, most of the people I know. Okay, how many people do you know outside the other inmates in your dorm? Now, what are they judging by? A pretty low standard. And what do we normally judge ourselves as better than most people? Do we look at the Mother Teresa's and all the people that are really, really good? No, we just look at all the people that we can be better at. That way we feel good. And God says, no, I am going to try your heart because I want you to know who you really are. And he puts us through these trials over and over again to reveal to us what the Bible declares. The heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. Who can know it? And I'm as guilty as everybody else, not thinking that I'm as bad as I really am, even though I know the scriptures. I don't like to think of myself as a terrible, miserable, awful person. You know, but that's what the Bible says I am on my innermost being. If it wasn't for the Holy Spirit controlling me, I would be an awful person. And I know I would be. I know what I was before I got saved. And I kind of know what I could have been if I hadn't got saved and got changed. And who I probably still am deep down. Because every once in a while, my anger will bur bubble up or something, you know, something caustic will be said or, you know, and all these different things. And we'll find out just who I really am on the inside. And you guys go through the same process. That God puts us into a fire and says, okay, let's see what comes out as we turn the heat up. Let's, let's turn the heat up and see what bubbles out of that heart and gets away from you. And here he's saying, the God you try the innermost being. And he says, and now he gets to something that is really hard. Let me see your vengeance on them, for they have revealed my cause. Unto them, uh, for unto you have I revealed my cause. He said, basically saying, God, go get them. They're making my life miserable. God, go get them. Now, I don't know if precatory prayers are a good prayer for Christians. All right? Uh, Jesus tells us to love our enemy, do good to those who despitefully use us. Over and over again, he tells us that we're to be kind to others. He elevated the standard that we're to live by. Now, in the Old Testament, we see lots of precatory prayers, and that means basically go get them prayers. God, go get them. They've, they've mistreated me. They're mistreating your church. They're mistreating other people. God, give them what they deserve. Now, I unfortunately sometimes think that way. I don't think I've ever prayed that way. But there are times when I'm thinking, wow, God, I just wish that they would get what they deserve. And I guess that's technically a prayer. Um, but here Jeremiah is saying, God, go get them. They, they, have, they have these things against me. And it says, I have revealed my cause. And he's basically saying, God, they're out to get me. Defend me. Go get them. Now, in my lifetime, I have seen people get what they deserve in their lifetime. And, you know, I know that there are people that rejoice when somebody suffers when they, when they deserve it. The times that I've seen that, I have not rejoiced. I've been rather sad because oftentimes it's not... And I've said this many times, it's not just the person who sins 
that suffers. It's their whole family. I would feel bad enough if it was just them. Because I don't even want to see them suffer, but I know that God needs to do that to them to get their attention. But to see their family suffer because of their sin is really hard to handle. And I am not one that likes this idea of precatory prayer. I know God will do what it takes to break somebody. And I want to be there to help them when that happens. I don't want to be there going, ah, look, they got, finally got what they deserve. God answered my prayer and they're hurting. I don't want that to be my attitude. And I hope that as Christians, that's not our attitude. But we see it a lot. David prayer, prayed lots of precatory prayers in the Bible. Uh, Jeremiah, Isaiah, uh, over and over again, we see lots of precatory prayers. God, go get them. And I'm just not sure that that is the attitude we as Christians should have. Now, there's so many precatory prayers in there. If you're somebody who likes precatory prayers, that's between you and God. I can't do them. I don't, I don't believe that they are something that a Christian should be, be experiencing. But I can't fault it. Oh, there's plenty of precatory prayers in the scriptures. And I just don't like to see people suffer. Even though I know darn well that they deserve it, because I know what I deserve. And I don't want what I deserve, so I really don't want to see others get what they deserve. I want to see grace be given to them. But if grace is not going to get them into repentance, then God will do what it takes to get them to repent. And sometimes that is being very hard and harsh on them. And even then, sometimes they don't change. And I've seen that over and over. We see it in the scriptures. But I have seen it in practical application where somebody literally had God coming against him and his family because of his sin, and he would not repent. And finally, he went home. And it was sad. You know, and I'm sure it was because of his sin and his lack of repentance. And that's you know, God getting, getting back at him and saying, I want your attention. And God will do what it takes to get our attention. I don't need to be praying for him to get somebody's attention because he knows what's needed. And when I see somebody stuff, suffering drastically from all of this, I'm going, God, it's sad that that's what it's taking to get their attention. But I want help me to be available if they need help at, when, they, when they come to the other side. And that should be our attitude as Christians. Are we ready to help somebody and lift them back up when they finally repent? When they finally come back to God and say, okay, you are loved. Come on, let's, let's get you back into your place. Because we all sin. We all fall short. And I don't want to see anybody judging one another on this because it is hard. And even though they may deserve it, I can think of how much things I deserve. I want grace. I want to see everybody else get grace. And... I love it in a movie because I've always believed this. It said, you know, the person asked, do they deserve grace? Should they get grace? And they go, they don't deserve it. And they go, absolutely, they don't deserve it. We don't deserve grace. Nobody deserves grace. If it was deserved, it wouldn't be grace. It would be wages. And we don't earn grace from God. God says, I am going to bless you with this gift of grace. And we need to just be able to understand we want grace. We need to give grace to other people. When, when it's something that we're going, well, I don't like this person. Look how bad they're doing. We need to give them grace. Now, grace does not mean I can't say that what you're doing is wrong. But I don't judge them and I don't try to make their life miserable from it. It's just that was something wrong, but, you know, God still loves you. And that's important. 
to be able to let them understand that God's grace is still there. He still loves them. And this is what Jeremiah isn't doing at this point. He's not looking for grace on these people. Uh, verse 21 says, Therefore thus saith the Lord of the men of Anathoth. Now, if you don't remember chapter 1, Anna, Anathoth is where Jeremiah is from. It's his hometown. His hometown wants to kill him. Pretty sad, sad place where they're not happy that the homeboy makes great and is prophet. They're going, we don't like what you're saying. We want you dead. And what would mean in the, even worse in this is back then your hometown was usually your own family. All right? So it's his own family wanting him dead. Because these little towns oftentimes were groups of families and clans. I'm not saying they were his brother and sister, but they were his people, his aunts, his uncles, his cousins. They're wanting him dead. And so his prayer is, God is saying, you know, the Lord has seen Anathoth, that they seek your life, saying, prophesy not in the name of the Lord that, that you die not by our hand. How many times maybe have you heard, quit telling me about Jesus or we're going to make life miserable for you? And it may not be quite that blunt in many cases, but I have heard it. I have seen it. In the workplace, we have to be very careful what we say, how we say it. Um, you know, granted, I'm not paid to be a pastor at, the, at, the, at work, but you know what? If people ask me about God, they're going to get more than they wanted in response because they opened the door. Now, do I go around preaching, you need Jesus, you need Jesus? No, that's not my job. I'm there to teach. I'm there to supervise. I'm there to minister if the doors are opened. And I do if the door is opened. And someday they'll probably fire me because I'll say the wrong thing to the wrong person. But you know what? I can't. If somebody, and I'll be able to defend myself if I really wanted to because I wait for them to open the doors and ask questions and, and lead into something. Uh, there's many people that I've used because they say, well, I've got these issues. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put you on my prayer list and I'll be praying for you that God will, God will heal you because he loves you. And just leave it, leave it at that. If they want to pursue it more, then I'd be more than happy to pursue it more. But his people were saying, quit prophesying or we're going to kill you. That's a pretty bold statement. You know, we're tired of hearing you. You're ruining the reputation of our town, Jeremiah, because you are preaching these things that nobody wants to hear. You're, you're prophesying all this doom and destruction and, and everything, and you're making our town look bad you're making our family name look bad because of your preaching God's word. And this is something that happens if you can remember when you first get saved, how many times does your family not want to hear anything about God? You know, we don't, well, we don't like what you're doing. You know, you're just one of those goody two-shoes. You think you're better than all of us. We just wish you'd be quiet. Matter of fact, quit coming to the family events if you're going to keep talking about God because we're not interested in hearing about him. This is basically what they're saying, except they're taking it to the extreme. Not only are they saying, don't come back home, they're saying, we're going to come and get you if you keep talking this way. But we've all hopefully experienced something like this, the division that becomes when God changes us. And you know, eventually more family members get saved and it becomes better because now there's a group of you that can form together and you've got your own little church within the family that can help build each other up and edify 
and people see the changed lives and hopefully more and more family members are changed. When I first got saved, I've said this over and over, I was the first one in my family, immediate family, to get saved. Now my, grand, my great-grandmother was saved, my grandmother was saved, but they weren't making a lot of impact on the family. And then my dad got saved. And then very quickly, lots of people in the family got saved. Why? Because God was moving in the family, and now the majority of my family is saved. Not all of them. Some of them are still crazy non-Christians, but many of them got saved. Not all of them got on fire for God, which would have been even better, but things changed in the family. And this is Jeremiah's family saying, shut up or else. Now, God's answer to this was a little uh, bit on the hard side. Verse 22, Therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will punish them. So God's going to step in and defend Jeremiah. The young men shall die by the sword. Their sons and daughters shall die by the famine. That's a pretty harsh harsh, uh, punishment. He says, "When when your young men go out to battle, they're going to die. And a matter of fact, we're going to have famine in your town and everybody else is going to die. That's a harsh penalty that comes upon them. And then it says, And there shall be no remnant of them, for I will bring evil upon the men of Anathoth, even the year of their visitation. Now this means that that city had gone over to complete evil. And God says, I'm not leaving a remnant. They want to come after you. There's nobody saying anything good about you. There's nobody that's saying, no, we can't do that to to Jeremiah. And God says, fine, the whole city is going to be destroyed. They have come against my worker, the one that I have anointed. And the scriptures are full of this, this idea, touch not the anointed of God. They came against Jeremiah, and Jeremiah was his anointed prophet. And God says, fine, your entire town is going to be destroyed. David kept saying over and over, I will not kill Saul. I will not touch God's anointed. Even though God has appointed me to be king, I will not be the one that kills Saul. And he had several opportunities to be able to kill Saul. And we see over and over in the scriptures, when people touch God's anointed, bad things happen. And I think he still does it to this day. And I've seen people who have attacked pastors without cause and seen what God has done to them. And this is very important. If somebody is anointed of God, whatever their position, don't attack them. Because God takes it very serious. When he gives somebody a job and people attack them, God takes it serious. And the results may not be death every time. Sometimes you wish it was death. (laughs) Uh, you know, because maybe you're going to lose your health. Maybe your family loses your health. Maybe your family dies. You know, we don't know all of what goes into this. We look at what happened to Job, and his three friends attacked Job, who was a righteous man, and God told Job, pray for them because I am ready to strike them. They touched you. They attacked you. I am ready now to judge them. Job, intercede for them. And Job interceded for them, and they were spared. Now, he could have said, no, they they really abused me. God, you just go ahead and do what you wanted with them. 
But Job was a man of grace and love for God. And he prayed for them, and God stayed his hand. And we see this over and over in the scriptures. When people go against God's people, they're anointed, bad things happen. We look at Pharaoh. What did Pharaoh do when Moses says, let my people go? He says, absolutely not. I don't know who God is. And his, really, his was really bad. He wasn't just touching the God's anointed uh, Moses and his people. He was touching out again and saying, I don't know who that God is. I don't care. What did God do? He sent 10 plagues that destroyed the economy of Egypt. And then when they chased him, he took the entire army of Egypt and dumped them in the, in the, in the Red Sea so that they were without an army and without economy. And it was a transition, one of the great transition periods of Egypt, where they went from one dynasty to the next because there was nobody there to defend, no army there to defend. And they were totally weak. And another dynasty came in and took over. And we see this over and over. How severe was Pharaoh's touching of God's people? Pretty bad. The promise that God made to Abraham, if people will, anyone who blesses you shall be blessed, anyone who curses you shall be cursed. And we can watch, if all through history, any place you see a nation attack Israel and the Jewish people, you see their downfall. You see bad things happen. Any nation, when they bless them, you see blessing in return. And America has been kind of a strange country because we've had an up and down relationship with blessing and cursing Israel. Uh, we haven't come out completely and cursed them, but there's times we've done, we've touched them and said, no, this is not what's good. We're going we're gonna to make something happen, and bad things happen in America. And when we bless them and we lift them up, then we're blessed. Does that mean that, that Israel is a perfect nation? Absolutely not. They, they're not a very perfect nation at all. But God said, I'm going to bless those who bless you. And this is the same thing. When we go after God's anointed, they may not deserve it. Saul did not deserve David not killing him. Matter of fact, David had every right to kill him because Saul was actively trying to kill him. And by human standards, he had every right to kill Saul and, and could have justified it. And yet he said, I'm not going to touch the one that God put in place. So it really doesn't matter whether they deserve it any honor or not. It doesn't matter whether, whether they're good or even bad. If God put them in place, we have to honor that, that position. And very important to be careful. I don't ever want to be speaking against other pastors of other churches. Number one, I'm not their pastor. Doesn't matter. Even if I think they're terrible pastors, it doesn't matter because God put them in charge of that church Maybe they're just the pastor that church deserves because of the attitude of the church. I don't know. And if God has righteous people in that church that are under that bad pastor, he'll take them out. And eventually the pastor will get the church that he deserves because of his attitude against God. My job is not to sit there and condemn. Now, if they're teaching something very obviously anti-biblical, I can say, this is what I heard them say, and it is not scriptural, but not attack that person. And it's the same thing. If I see somebody sinning, I can say to them, especially in the church, because I'm the pastor, what you're doing is wrong. Not condemning them, but this is what God says about what you're doing. And then let God do the work. And be very careful, because every one of us as his children are anointed. We do not want to be attacking each other. Because then we are touching God's anointed, and we will suffer 
the consequence for touching his anointed individuals. And we need to be very careful because it is so easy to judge one another. When they don't live up to our standards, they're not doing what we think they should be doing. And we're going, you know what, you are just so rotten. Look at all the bad stuff you're doing. The only problem is then we're not looking at ourselves and all the bad stuff we are doing. Because this is so important for us that we understand we're, we're, we're evil. We really are. Now I understand, yes, God has forgiven us. He's clothed us in the righteousness of Christ. He is sanctifying us. He's making us more perfect. But deep down in our heart, even though he's given us a new heart and a new desires, deep down in our innermost being, we are fallen. And given a chance, we will do what is wrong. And, and whenever God is not reigning in our heart completely, we're going to go, well, I'm just going to do what I want. God, you know, I know that you don't want me doing this, but I want to do it. And we need to be very careful about that attitude. Uh, and we've, it's, all kinds of studies have been done where people have been asked, if you knew that you could get away with it, what would you do? Well, you know, outside of knowing that God is always seeing, we can think about, if I knew that I could get away with it, what would I do? It's kind of a scary thought. You know, it would be a very scary thought for some of us, including myself. You know, there's people I'm going, well, if I just knew that I could get away with it, they wouldn't be bothering me anymore. They wouldn't be bothering the, the church anymore if I knew that, they, that I would never get caught. You know, but I have to put it in God's hands. But deep down, it's like, I wish they would get what they deserve sometimes. But outwardly, God's spirit comes in and says, no, love them. Be kind to them. And usually, his spirit work wins out. Especially on some of my darkest desires. But this is where we're at with it. God is saying, don't touch them, but I am going to judge it. And this is the thing we always want to remember. God is our defense. And the more we understand that God is going to defend us no matter what, the better we are off we are. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I've always loved their answer to King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, when Nebuchadnezzar said, who can deliver you from, our hand, from my hand? Their answer was, God can deliver us from your hand, but whether he does or he does not, we will serve God. Is that our attitude? When we face something that is really hard decision, and there's going to be some severe consequences by the flesh, is our answer going, is going to be, I'm going to stand for God no matter what. If it costs me my job, if it costs me my reputation, if it costs me everything I have, if it costs me my life, I will stand for God because he's my defender. And it doesn't mean that you're not going to die, you're not going to suffer. The, the disciples did all kinds of suffering. They got beat all the time for obeying God. Paul got beat and chased out of towns. He got stoned. He got... You know, he got whipped. He said he took the 39 lashes on three or four occasions. And he goes, you know, he still said, God be blessed. Is that our attitude? Are we ready to serve God no matter what? He wants to be our defender. And he is our defender. And he said in Proverbs, uh, I am your strong tower. The righteous run into me and they are safe. If we have trials, we need to run into God. Now the world looks at it and going, you guys are just a bunch of escapisms. You need a crutch. Thank you. Yes, I need a crutch. I want God to be my crutch. By the way, what's your crutch? 
You know, is it work? Is it family? Is it your hobbies? Is it your money? Everybody has a crutch. You know, everybody has their crutch. And some of them are really bad, alcoholism or, or drugs, but some people have kind of benign crutches. I'm a workaholic. I'm going to escape all my problems by going to work and getting all the praise by being the best manager, best owner, whatever it is. And everybody's going to love me because of all the good things that I do. And but my family life, it's going to go to hell because I'm not there. My personal life is going to go to hell because I'm not there. I'm always at work. That's a big crutch. That's a crutch that I know. I was a workaholic for many years and did a lot of damage to my family that I am still suffering from 40 years later from the neglect of my family for 10 years because I was a workaholic, hardly ever at home. Now, I justified it. You know, we need, we need everything. We, you know, I need to make lots of money, and I need to get promoted, and I need, you know, I need a nice house. We need this, and I justified it all. But my family could have definitely used me, and I probably still gotten promoted because I was good at what I did without having to be there 80 hours a week. You know, so where are we at? Are we serving God, or are we putting ourselves first and looking at him? Run to God. Hide in him. Chapter 12. Righteousness, righteous are you, O Lord, when I plead with you. Yet let me talk with you of your judgment. Wherefore do, do the ways of the wicked prosper? Wherefore are all, are all they happy that deal very treacherously? You have planted them, yea, you have taken, they have taken root. They grow, yea, they bring forth fruit. You are near in their mouth and far from their reins. But you, O Lord, know me. You have seen me and tried my heart towards you. Pull them out like the sheep for the slaughter and prepare them for the day of slaughter. How long shall the land mourn and the herbs of, of every field wither? For the wickedness of them that dwell therein, the beasts are consumed, and the birds because they said, He has not seen our last end. All right, so here's Jeremiah. He's kind of getting to the point. David's made this point at various times. And it's, God, you're righteous. Why are the wicked so <laughs> looking so good? Every single righteous person, every single Christian, every single Jew that's following God has probably thought just this thing. God, I am serving you, and I don't seem to be getting any great blessings. And these people are getting getting wealthy they're getting they're, everything looks good why are the why are these millionaires up there that don't seem to care about you god and you're still blessing them at least what we consider blessing and this is the problem with this we don't see it the way god sees it and one of the things i have learned because i have actually met a couple people that were fairly wealthy and sometimes people didn't even know that they were and got to know them and they're not happy without christ because there's never enough money. You know, you never have enough money for everything that you want to do. You're always worried when you do get money and fame, you're worried, do people like me because I'm rich and famous or do they like me? And they don't find the happiness that they thought they were going to find. We look at them just like Jeremiah is and saying, God, what, what's going on? They're, they're dealing treacherously in business and getting wealthy. And he goes even further. He goes, you have planted them. You know, they are growing out there. And everything looks like they're doing well. But again, he's looking at the outward 
sight. And God, if he would tell him, and it would be to say, look at their heart. They're far from me. They are empty. They don't have anything. And we see it over and over again when people envy the, the famous singer, the famer, famous actor or actress, the famous uh, athlete. And they're going, God, they seem to have everything. They've got the big house. They've got a big bank account. They've got everything, and I've got just this little bit. God, why do they get to have everything, and I don't get to have anything? And we need to be careful of that attitude. David said it in some of the Psalms. Jeremiah says it. Isaiah says it. Almost all the prophets do look at it, and, and it's kind of a self-pity party. God, I am in all kinds of trials. People are making my life hard, and look at them. Nothing, nothing's going wrong for them. And I've said this so many times. If we really get to know them, we're not going to find out that they're not happy. Why do so many rich people, famous people, get addicted to drugs and alcohol? Is because they're not happy. All that wealth, all that fame is not meeting the innermost need of their heart. And we look at them and saying, well, God, I just don't understand. They've got cars, they've got friends, they've got plenty of money, they can go out and do whatever they want. Nobody, nobody has any problems. They, everybody knows them, they're loved, everybody cares, you know, thinks about them. And God, nobody thinks about me. Nobody cares about me. I don't have anything. Be careful about that attitude. Because you probably don't want to have what they have. Because their, their God is their fame. Their God is their, their money. Their God is their popularity. And they're going to find out that it doesn't fulfill in the long run. And we look at them at this little narrow band of time with what we see. And we're not even seeing what their heart is and where they are emotionally. And we'll see the consequence later on. They always will reap what they sow eventually. And even if they don't reap what they sow in this lifetime, they will at the white throne judgment when they're cast into hell. And we just have to understand that God has a plan. God does not reward or, or punish instantly. He gives people a chance to repent and to prove where they're at. And the same thing for us. Sometimes we serve God and we serve God and we're going, God, where is the blessings? I'm serving you. I'm pouring my heart out. And nothing seems to be going my way. Or if you really want to be spiritual, your way, God. <laughs> you know, God, nothing seems to be building up your kingdom. Nothing seems to be helping. Nothing, nothing seems to be doing good. And I am just pouring my life into this. And God's saying, it's coming. The reward is coming. We may just be planting seeds. Now, and that's hard to do sometimes when you look at it and say, all I do is plant seeds. And then you watch somebody else come along and reap the harvest of the seeds that you planted. And at that time, sometimes it can be, God, why couldn't I have had just a few of those people get saved when I was ministering to them? Doesn't matter, you still get credit. Paul said, I, I planted Apollo's... Uh, watered and uh, Peter, Peter reaped. I don't think I got the names in the right order, but you know, he said each one did their part, but all get the blessing. Now, God is wonderful. He's very much like the military. The military awards everybody commendations from the ones that actually fight the battle to the people who drive the supply line vehicles to the, to the battlefront to the ones planning the battle. 
Because without any one of those parts, it would not have been a successful battle, so they reward everybody that's part of that battle. Even, even the ones that weren't on the front line putting their life at risk on the front line. And it's one of the reasons when you look at generals and admirals, they have whole chests full of medals. It's because they did a lot of planning for lots of battles, and they get a ribbon for everyone, every battle they plan. And then you get all the people that run, run back and forth between the battles getting, getting ribbons as well, even though their life technically wasn't at risk on the, except for a few, few hours when they were at the battlefront delivering. But God does the same thing. If you plant a seed, maybe that doesn't reap for 30, 40 years. God remembers you planted the seed. Maybe somewhere in that 30, 40 years, you were one of the ones watering. Watering that seed, God remembers. And you get the reward for, for that. So many of us will have people that we have indirectly ministered to, and we'll get rewards and not even know that they ever got saved. And God says, well, you talked to them, you, you watered, you planted, and then 50 years later they got saved, and you don't even know them anymore, but you planted the seed. You planted a seed and there's a reward. We need to quit looking at things by sight. And, you know, it is easy to fall by sight because we're human beings. We like to see, God, you know, what, what is really going on in this ministry? What is going on with this? You know, walking by sight, I'd be disappointed in this church because we just have so few people. But looking at the lives that have been changed, I'm not disappointed at all. Because there are major lives that have been changed in big ways. Some of them have moved off and, and ministering other places. You know what? This church ministering to them gets credit for some of the stuff they're ministering into the future. You know, God's got a plan that we don't fully understand. And I love just saying, God, I want to trust your plan. Do I always do it perfectly? Oh, no. <laughs> I'm human. But I, I oftentimes will just look and say, God, would I like more people? Oh, yes, I'd love to have more people being ministered to. I'd love to see more lives being changed. But I also don't know how many lives are being changed. The people who have left here that are still ministering are changing lives. The, we broadcast on the Internet how many lives are being changed out there from the thousands and thousands of people that listen to these messages every month. I don't know. I, it won't be until heaven that I get to find out anything that this does. And everybody in this church, I get the privilege of being the one that gets recorded, but everybody else who gives money and supports the church, they're part of that because the money goes to, to maintain the webpage. Their money goes to pay me so that I can be able to do this. So all these little benefits that go in to the ministry of God's word. And we don't know the full impact of what we're doing. I'm looking forward to getting to heaven and saying, God, how many people got saved? How many lives were changed? How many lives were changed and they went out and ministered and saved people? All of this that's out there and God says it started. Started with each of the, the teachers and, and prophets and, and disciples in the Bible that laid the foundation for what we still teach today. They're getting credit for all the stuff that's still going on thousands of years later because they served God. All the martyrs that have died and they're still remembering their name are getting credit for the lives that come into God because they're remembered for how strong they were to just die for Christ. We don't know what God is doing. Be ready just to serve God and take our place where it is. And this is very important on us. He says, you know, God, you know, you, they planted, they're bringing forth fruit. 
He goes, you are near in their mouth, but far from their reins or their heart. He goes, God, they talk about you a lot, but you are not part of who they are. We all probably know lots of people. You know, I love it when people don't want to acknowledge God, but when bad things happen, what do they say? Why does God let all these bad things happen to me? You know, I love it when somebody who says they're an atheist or agnostic will say that. Why does God let all these bad things? I go, I didn't, you didn't believe in God, I thought. I, well, I don't. Well, you just blamed God for your bad stuff, so you must believe God. But you know, there are so many people that they speak God's name to a degree, but do not serve him. They say the right words, but they do not serve him. When push comes to shove, they'll deny him in, the, in a moment because they just, he is not near to their heart. He is on their lips, but not near. And their churches are filled with people like this that name the name of Jesus, will talk about God until, would you really believe that God would do something like that? Uh, well, I'm not so sure about that. Yeah. And they just back right off. And God is saying, and be close to him. Stand with him no matter what. And this is critical for us to be able to stand with God no matter what. I love it when these people or get into trouble. The baker in, in Colorado who's always in trouble because the, the uh, homosexuals are out to get him. You know, they ask him to bake cakes for their, their ceremonies, and he says, no, I can't. You know, uh, and he's been taken to court, I think, three times now. And every time he wins, they still go after him. They're harassing him day and night. And this is happening all over the place. People are being harassed. And unfortunately, many Christians just back off and say, nope, not going to trust God to protect me. Might lose my job, might lose my business. I won't, I'm not going to trust God in the fiery furnace. I don't want to lose everything, so I'm going to just reject him. We want to be careful about that. It's so easy to do, and it's so hard to just be obedient sometimes. But the more we let God lead our life, the closer we are to him, the easier it gets to say, God, I'm going to stand with you. You are my defense. If I lose my job, then God, you have to pay my bill. You're going to have to help me pay bills or give me another job. God, if I lose my life, then I go to heaven. Now, I have no problem. If I lose my life, I get to go to heaven. That's not a problem for me. Now, if they beat me to a pulp and I have to live, that's a problem because now I'm going to have all kinds of medical bills. But you know what? God will take care of those as well. He's still my defense. He's still my defender. He's still the one that loves me. So even though I go through things that seem to be awful and terrible, he is still the one that is going to take care of me. How? I don't know. I don't know how God works in many of these things. But he will do the work. And we just need to be able to trust that, that he will. And verse 13, But you, O Lord, know me, you have seen me and tried my heart towards you. So he says, God, you know me. You have tried my heart. You know that I want to serve you. Now, is Jeremiah saying I'm perfect? No, he's just saying, God, you know who I am, where I'm at. You know what I, what I desire. Paul said it in the New Testament. You know, I do the things I don't want to do. I don't do the things I want to do. Oh, woe is me. And this is what Jeremiah is basically saying I, you know what I want to do. God, you know that I want to follow you. I may not always do it, 
Matter of fact, I'm going to make lots of mistakes. But you know that my spirit really wants to serve you. And he's saying, this is what I want. And then he gets a little more precatory prayer here. Pull them out, out like sheep for the slaughter and prepare them for the day of slaughter. All right, God, you take those evil people out. You take them out of the flock and you, you, you go out and you put them into the slaughterhouse. Uh, pretty, pretty harsh language. How long shall the land mourn and the herbs of every field wither? For the wickedness of them that dwells therein. The beasts are consumed, the birds, because they said, He has not seen our last end. So basically he's saying, God, get them. And he's telling them, they're saying that God doesn't see them. Now, I don't know if most people literally say that, but don't they act like that? Don't we act like that sometimes when we're walking in sin and doing things that we know that we're not supposed to? Well, you know, nobody out there is out there to see this, so it must be okay. God sees it. God always sees everything that we do. He is omnipresent. And, you know, if we truly, really believe that, then we would be more careful about what we do and what we say and how we act. Because I know that there are times when I forget that God is right there with me. As I say something that's mean or nasty, if I think something mean and nasty, or maybe even act on something mean and nasty, I kind of forget that God is right there. And yet he's right there. Nothing is hidden from him. He knows us no matter what. If I'm running from him, I haven't read my Bible, I haven't gone to church, I haven't been around a Christian, God still knows me. David said, if I descend into the midst of hell, you are there. And he's always everywhere because he is everywhere present. Now in hell, he is there. He is going to be the convictor of sin and, and for where they're at but there will be no comfort or love from him at that point. It's just conviction. But he is everywhere. And he's never got a time when he is not everywhere. And the thing about this is, where is everywhere? Now, when I was young, I used to think, well, God is everywhere on this planet. Then I got realizing, well, he's also everywhere in the, in the uh, uh, atmosphere. And then as I started getting more and more knowledge of science, I'm going, you know what? He's in every dimension that there is. God, you are literally everywhere. You are all the places that I don't even know about yet. And this is the thing about it. If there's another world out there in another dimension, God is there. And he is in full control of that dimension as well as this one. We just need to understand that God dwells in everything. And he is present everywhere. And he is in control of everything even things that we may not understand or know. But this is where we're at. Do we fully understand the magnitude of God's care for his people? There is nothing that happens to us that God did not know beforehand. There is nothing that I do that God did not know that I, wasn't going, that I was going to do before I did it. And he already has a plan for each of those actions. And he's promised that all things work together for good. Now, I love the fact that it says all things. Not just all the good things that it look good. Not all the things that I allow him to do, but all things that I do. Even when I go out and purposely do the wrong thing, God includes that in all things. That's pretty powerful when you think about it. 
even when I totally mess up what I think his plan is, maybe even on purpose, he still says, I've got a good plan to make something good to work out of that. Now, it might be just showing how he can do good things through others in spite of our misdeeds, but something good will happen from it because he already knows what we're going to do. And this is what he's saying to, to the people. The people are claiming God does not see what we're doing. He does not see where we're going to end up. What are they saying? God doesn't understand, doesn't know the future. He doesn't know, you know what I'm going to do in the future, so I can do anything I want now because I might repent, I might get worse. It doesn't matter because God doesn't, doesn't know the future. They don't understand God. And this is a problem that they don't understand God. And we need to fully understand God is in control of everything. He already knows however long the world is going to last before we get into the tribulation period. He knows everything that's going to happen in there. He's already told us what's going to happen during the tribulation period. Why? Because he already knows. He already knows what's going to happen in the millennial kingdom after the tribulation period. Because he already knows. He already knows what's going to happen after the new heaven and new earth. Now, he didn't tell us much about the new heaven and new earth, but he already knows everything about that. Because he is outside of time, and he knows everything. God will never learn something new. Now, I don't know if that's a good thing. I don't know if not learning anything good is a, you know, learning anything new is a good thing, but God never learns anything new because he knows everything. And, you know, I've said this before, you know, if somehow we manage to learn everything there is to know about our, our world, God will just create a bunch of new stuff for us to learn. He's not worried about it. He's very powerful. He'll just create a bunch of new stuff for us to learn, put us in a new, new dimension or whatever, and say, okay, there's a lot more for you to learn here. We will never be God. We will never learn everything there is to know. But God already knows everything. He never learns anything. That's powerful. His love for us never changes. That's powerful in and of itself. No matter what I do, no matter what I say, no matter how bad or good I am, God still loves me. The same. He doesn't love me more or less. Now, he may not be happy with what I'm doing. He may not be pleased with what I'm doing, but he still loves me the same. He may have to give me some woodshed experiences for my behavior, but that's his love being expressed, saying, I cannot let you keep going the direction you're going and cause me some pain, but not because he hates me, not because he's mad at me, but because he loves me, he will do this. And we need to understand who God is and always remember who he is. And he is our defender. If somebody needs to be taken out of our life and away from us, God will take them out. And he will make sure that what needs to be done is done. If somebody needs to be taken care of and we refuse to take care of them, God will bring another one of his servants right behind and say, okay, they're going to take care of them. You missed your chance at a blessing. And this is just going to be it. Sometimes we've lost opportunities for blessing because we did not obey God. Didn't mean that that person wasn't taken care of. Just means we didn't do it. And we might have been the right person, but God said, okay, the right person's not going to do it. I'll bring the next best person along behind the scenes to help them. And they'll take care of it. And we need to be able to understand this whole thing that when we're tempted to judge other people, that we just say, God, 
they're in your hands. Teach me to love them. Teach me to be caring for them so that when they do fall from the judgment, there'll be somebody there to help catch them and be able to minister to them. And that's why it's important for us to love our enemies, do good to them. Now, they may not like being loved when they're in the middle of their denial of God. But you know, when they fall flat on their face and they need a friend, they're the prodigal who's lost everything. They're going to think about that person that loved them in spite of anything else that was done to them. And they'll probably turn and go, I need what you have. Would you tell me about what you, what you were trying to tell me in the past when I wasn't listening? The prodigal returned to his father who loved him. Other times, we might be the one that they turn to and say, I want to know about your God. You loved me in spite of the way I treated you. I want to know about that God. Because now I've fallen flat on my face and nobody cares about me. And you're still here. You're still reaching out. You're still loving. You're still being kind. We need that kind of attitude with people. Just to remember God's grace and how it works. Lord, we ask you to bless this evening. We ask you to always help us to love others, be able to show grace to others. Lord, even when it seems that they're being evil, they're doing bad things, we ask you to help us to learn just to love and to be available to serve you in all that we do. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friends, where will you be when you die? We ask this question of a lot of people oftentimes, and the biggest answer we'll get is, I hope I will be in heaven. If hope is your answer, you don't know God, and this is a problem. We all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of the sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. If you do not know for sure that you're going to go into heaven, please, today, make your decision to follow him. It is simply just ask him, Lord, I am a sinner. Please come into my life and save me and make him your Lord. If you've said that prayer, let us know so that we can send you a new believers packet. You can contact us at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or even pastor at chloridebaptistchurch.com. Or you can just send us a regular letter at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona, 86431. Thank you very much for listening and have a wonderful day.